This is Radio CM, the podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On February 19, 2016, University of Arizona archaeologist Barbara Mills met with a graduate and undergraduate students taking the course Ceramic Analysis, which is taught by Cornell professor Lori Cachadoria. Their discussion considers how technological style and choice relate to the archaeological analysis of ceramic material. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio CMs. Hello, and welcome to the podcast series of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. I'm Lori Kachadorian, Assistant Professor in the Department of Near Eastern Studies and a faculty member in SIAMS. And it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Professor Barbara Mills, who is an anthropologist, a professor in the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. Our podcast today is unique in that for the first time it is being recorded in the context of a class, a seminar called Ceramic Analysis for Archaeology. And you are joining us in the second part of today's seminar. We've spent the past hour or so discussing critical themes and seminal papers in ceramic analysis as they pertain to matters of technological style, choice, the chaîne apertoire, and uh, transmission and learning. Broadly speaking, our discussion thus far has revolved around matters of production in the making of communities, um, but we now turn uh, with this podcast to matters of consumption with help from Dr. Mills, who has shared with us a paper called Communities of Consumption, Cuisines as Constellated Networks of Situated Practice. This paper will appear shortly this spring in an edited volume edited by Roddick and Stahl called Knowledge in Motion, Constellations of Learning Across Time and Space with the Ameren Foundation Series at the University of Arizona Press. I thought I would start uh, by asking a rather sort of general question of Professor Mills before we turn to our uh, student attendees, which is I was really struck by the uh, Southwest Social Networks Project. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about it in general. Uh, as of this publication, it sounds like there were 4.3 million ceramics in this network database, which is just staggering compared to the scale of the data sets that I work with. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what this project is in general, and more broadly, how you feel network analysis um, is shaping archaeological thought and practice and what you see as some of its great strengths, perhaps what you see as some of its limitations, and whether you feel it is really designed for big data on the scale of of what you have available in the American Southwest. Um, Well, thank you very much for that great introduction, and thank you very much for inviting me to be here. I enjoyed very much the discussion uh, with all of you uh, in the uh, ceramic analysis seminar earlier. So um, I am a Southwest archaeologist and I deal a lot with pottery and we in the Southwest have probably, well it's true I think of North America in general, 95% of all the archaeology that is done uh, is basically done through cultural resources management and through the heritage uh, industry. Much of those data sit in reports, they sit in Uh, individual files of different investigators. They are in museums. Oftentimes they're not synthesized. So when I was thinking about a new project, you know, we all have these 10-year projects that we take on every once in a while. And when I was thinking about a new project about eight years ago, I considered um, going and excavating a new site, 
and being able to do some very particular kinds of analyses. But then I thought about all of the data that were sitting in all of these different repositories and all of these different reports that had not been brought together yet. And part of my inspiration was the presence of a database that had already been created called the Coalescent Communities Database by colleagues in Tucson who were affiliated with the nonprofit institution called Archaeology Southwest. And what they had done was to create one of these large um, uh, data, relational databases that had the provenience of every site that was more than 13 rooms uh, in size and dated between AD 1200 and 1550. And those uh, data contributed to understanding demographic changes across a very large swath of the Southwest. And I looked at that and I said, but where's the material culture? How can we add to that database, use that as a basis for being able to understand some of the different uh, patterns that we are interested in in terms of ceramics and in terms of chipstone and other kinds of material culture? So I actually didn't know how big this was going to get at the time mm -hmm. that I thought about it. But at the time I was thinking about it, I was also uh, intrigued by the network literature. I was starting to read, you know, some of the the classic kinds of uh, works, uh, like you know, produced by Duncan Watts and and some of his other colleagues. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if we could accumulate the data and then apply some of these different kinds of network approaches? Uh, and the network approaches uh, are relational. They tell us about how uh, people relate to each other, or in archaeological cases, how households or sites relate to each other. But we don't necessarily have you know, the interview data that a lot of the network uh, scientists uh, might have, or cultural anthropologists might have. We have to build those relationships out of uh, shared material practice. But that, that was the impetus for me to write a grant proposal with my colleagues in Archaeology Southwest, and we were fortunately funded by the National Science Foundation. And then the Southwest Social Networks project came about as a result of that. How did you, who entered the data? Or is it automatically, oh, and 4.3 million Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, we're actually, up, we're actually up to about 4.6 million mm -hmm. now. It's a, a combination of lots and lots of different kinds of uh, data integration. Mm -hmm. So when when we're dealing with big data, you know, we have to look at um, lots of, of sources. So as you know from your own work, uh, we have uh, there are tables that people publish in their reports that uh, list you know, the objects that are found. But in many cases, we didn't have the counts uh, available in the in the actual reports. So we had to go to the archives. Uh, we we scanned material. We actually converted stuff um, uh, digitally uh, from uh, from just physical uh, tables. We did new analyses in museums uh, because we had the database of sites. We knew which sites we wanted to have information about, and so we were able to go to the different site files that are present in southwestern uh, research inst uh, institutions and state files. And so we were able to then target very specifically which sites you know, we wanted uh, to have the information from. And then we also did uh, a relocation survey. We had the UTMs. And so we got permits uh, from, for example, the Forest Service to go out and 
relocate sites. Some of these sites had not been relocated, uh, but were known about uh, for, for many decades. And we did uh, non-collection uh, analyses on site. Uh, so it was everything from field work to lab work to um, asking people that we knew had worked on these sites to share data. And then, uh, then it started to snowball and people came forward and said, oh, I have data about this site and I'd, um, I'd love to contribute it to your database. And so it was really a very large cooperative effort with a lot of graduate students and a lot of uh, professionals who were working in the community. It's really impressive and I would be willing to guess one of the largest databases in archaeology or there are very few on that scale, so that's, that's fantastic. Okay, our first question comes from Kathleen, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm Kathleen Garland. I'm a first-year PhD student in the Classics Department, um, and I'd like to say I really enjoyed reading your article, um, particularly the ways in which you suggest we can understand power relations through the material record. So um, in the article, you say that perhaps it's the pace and extent of innovation and transformation and practices that may best be suited to offering insights into power relations between teachers and apprentices. And I was wondering how we can sort of combine our understanding of this particular power relation and the power relation between the migrant communities and the host communities that you talk about. Um, so the, the migrant communities um, coming from Northeast Arizona become the brokers of a technical knowledge and a social practice that is desired by the host communities. And yet we see them sort of become subsumed by their apprentices in a way. And I was wondering how uh, we can understand that power relation better. Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, well, I think that power relations are part of every interaction. And that if we start looking at apprenticeship, then it's, um, understanding how teachers and students uh, interact, um, we can really look at um, the uh, both the adoption as uh, something that uh, is a recognition of the, um, the uh, individuals who are working together, but also that students may want to change things. And that is actually um, an, an assertion of, of, of power within that relationship is to be able to, to do something new um, and say that I'm not going to be limited just by what I learned from my teacher. Uh, it's kind of ironic that we're doing this in a classroom <laughs> situation. But, um, but yeah, and I think that's how change happens, is, is that oftentimes um, in, in, in the, the apprentice-student uh, kind of relation, um, or teacher relationship, we, we do get um, people thinking that, yes, I can do something slightly differently. And in order to be able to do that, uh, you have to take charge and you have to do something that's um, innovative. So when we ratchet that up to the relationship between the migrants and their host community, I think that uh, there are other kinds of relationships that happen because it's a different context. But in the case that of Mogollon Rim, for example, where I did a lot of archeological work and where we know that migrants moved in, and rather quickly seem to have um, intermarried uh, with the host community, those power relations were probably played out in multiple social contexts. They were probably played out in the family. If, if, you, if a migrant is marrying into a family uh, that was the host community, then 
the power relationship between, say, the, um, a woman who's a potter within that context is played out in all different kinds of, of uh, situations. And that's where the situated learning and, 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 uh, uh, is, is very important. Um, and so it, it can play out at the table, uh, you know, in terms of meals. Uh, who gets served first? Uh, who is uh, served what? And what it, is the food served in? <clears throat> and so all of those are ways in which power relationships can be expressed at the household level. But then at the supra-household level, there are also the, uh, the traditions that people brought that connect households together that might have been part of the, um, say, some of the uh, ceremonial uh, outcomes of being part of these new communities. And those certainly had power relationships. And it, there's a saying in uh, among some of the ethnologists of the Pueblos that every ceremony is attended uh, with feasting, uh, so that feasts become part of that level of interaction at the supra-household level. And in those situations, there's, there are a lot of dynamics in which power can play out, too. Who, which family brings more food, uh, to bring it back to the, you know, to the theme of consumption? Uh, which family uh, hosts the feast? Uh, which family is responsible for the ritual knowledge that goes into the practices that people are feasting to celebrate? Hi, I'm Anastasia Kutsoglu. I'm a second year uh, PhD student in anthropology. Um, and we've just heard a really interesting discussion between you and Kathleen on um, brokers and boundary negotiations. And in your article, we also read a bit about false leads, um, mimicry appropriation of wares. Um, so I'm just curious, along these lines, um, are, is there room for ethnogenic moments um, within the framework that you're using? And if so, how would that change the strands of connection within the larger, both temporal and spatial uh, network? I think that you've hit on a very important point about ethnogenesis in these situations where people are coming together from multiple places. And I think it's the creativity that happens with diversity. Uh, and we see that being discussed today in, in today's world uh, about how it's important to have multiple strands of information, multiple kinds of people, multiple backgrounds represented in a working group in order to be able to move um, in a creative and, and innovative way. And so when that happens with large numbers of people uh, together uh, in these boundary situations, then uh, that's when we, we do see a lot of change happening much more rapidly than we do in other areas that are more conservative and that seem to have insulated themselves uh, in a very closed kind of uh, system. Hi, um, my name is Alex Rayberg. I'm a senior film and government major. And I really enjoyed reading your article, particularly because um, I've conducted social network research at uh, Cornell's um, uh, Social Sciences Research Laboratory. And um, your answer to Kathleen's question kind of answered one of my questions that I had about uh, gender and 
and the power of that in the networks. Um, but one of my questions uh, has to do with around uh, page 254 of your article where um, you first introduce kind of, uh, sorry, you, uh, you introduce how in this prehistoric society there's these large feasts and the networks branch out because of these feasts and how there's the blurring of the public and the private sphere. And I'm wondering, um, uh, my, re my research was about how we link ourselves cognitively to other nodes down a longer social network. So I was wondering how uh, apprenticeship uh, in this situation would have extended from the public to the private, you know, the super public feast that you're talking about, how apprenticeship may have extended a lot, like beyond the family nodes in this case. So when we talk about um, the, the, the different pottery that's made in this area, uh, we have to recognize that there are multiple uh, practices, there are multiple wares uh, that are being produced. And so we have cooking pots that are made. Uh, they're made by coiling and scraping the inside and then leaving the coiling evident on the outside. Uh, there are white wares there are, that are uh, black on white for the most part. And there are polychromes. And there are multiple polychromes. So we had this incredible richness and diversity in the kinds of pots that are made. And I'm going to draw on uh, my uh, friend and colleague's work, Patricia Crown, at the University of New Mexico, in part to answer your question. And what she has found is that the skill levels of the polychromes, particularly these uh, early glazeware vessels, um, was very, very high. And, and this also draws on um, Scott Van Curen's work uh, that he did for his dissertation, and he's now at the University of Vermont, that these, um, the, these polychromes, the redware polychromes, took enormous amount of skill. And so it looks like children are not allowed to make those. And in fact, uh, Professor Crown's chapter in the same book will be about that very topic or is about that topic. And so um, the community of practice and the learning of how to make those polychromes, particularly the, this one that's illustrated in the article, was probably done when the potters were older and probably with different kinds of knowledge base uh, for them to have participated in that kind of situated learning experience. Now, the black and white and the corrugated cooking pots were probably made by children. And so uh, or children were allowed to learn on those pots. And so that would be one of my examples of how there were multiple kind of scales or, and multiple um, degrees of learning and, and communities of practice, even within these this one community. Hi, I'm Gabby Bornstein. I'm a first-year PhD student in anthropology. And in, I was wondering, in communities of consumption, you attest to the myriad ways in which archaeologists rely on ceramics to trace the movement and interactions of different cultural groups. The materials of production, in some sense, become a proxy for the identities and or ideologies that brought them into being. So I was wondering to what extent the knowledge of community practice is telling of the socio-political context in which the object or vessel is produced. How might the object biography provide insight onto the social mechanisms that work for community construction and maintenance? 
I'm glad you brought up the, the tools of production. Uh, that's one of our favorite things to talk about in terms of migration. And the, um, the potters in this uh, area of the Southwest who lived in the Northeastern Arizona and then migrated uh, to the Mugion Rim area and, and areas further south brought with them a technology of production that involved turning plates. So these are uh, perforated and non-perforated plates that are specifically made for pottery production. And they occur first up in Northeastern Arizona and then they're time transgressive uh, further and further to the south. And they're, they're kind of like, I kind of joke that this is sort of like the Hansel and Gretel, the, the breadcrumbs that are left uh, behind uh, to be able to trace uh, the pathways in which these potters moved. And so the, this, this is one of the ways that the potters were able to uh, uh, make more pots uh, because they were specialized potters and being able to make more establish themselves as the producers and the um, uh, suppliers to other people. And so in that sense, there was uh, some uh, interaction at, at the social and probably political level in, in making things that exceeded what they needed to make for themselves and allowed them to establish themselves in these communities as very skilled and um, expert potters. Hi, I'm Ned Fisher. I'm a master's student in archaeology. And um, my question has to do with the framework which you discuss in your paper. And you're discussing a, a set of circumstances in which the objects you're talking about are very visible and very, very much a part of a community. Um, and as members of the community learn what vessels are appropriate for certain circumstances and how to display these vessels and, you know, how to make these vessels perform in the way that they want to within the community. Um, they take on completely different meanings. And I was wondering if if the community of consumption is much smaller, so it's a much more personal consumption of the object, how might the um, community's practice respond differently than with a larger community of consumption? I love talking about the performance of these pots. Um, you know, some of them are red, uh, which is something that you can see from a distance, and the uh, and some of them are uh, uh, smaller. Uh, the larger ones are the ones that tend to be decorated on the outside, uh, which is something that we think has a performance quality to it. And the the larger vessels that are used in these feasts are the um, product of I think these m much more expert potters. But if, it were, if they were used in a, in a smaller setting, and I think some of them were, then I think that that's where the attention to the inside design is important. And so you'll notice that um, many of these pots have very, very complex, dense, uh, and beautifully uh, executed designs on the inside. And I think so at the same time that some of these pots are being made for an external community, uh, the inside was decorated with the eye and, um, and the intent of knowing that they were going to be used to serve food and that as the food is consumed, that the individuals who are sharing that food uh, get, a, get a view of what's on the inside. So we see at the same time, one object can actually do both.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I interject there then to ask? So earlier we talked about Vobst's theory of style and communication, and or and Dietler and Herbig's critique of it in their 1989 article Tik Matek. And I'm wondering whether uh, you you would in a way try to salvage Vobst or not necessarily, but you, the external decoration is doing something communicative in it for you. Um, how would you? give voice to that communicative work, and how is it perhaps different from uh, what Wolfs is trying to argue for in thinking of style as mainly engaged in information exchange or information provision and response? I don't think we've given up completely. Mm -hmm. That some parts of what people do with material culture is going to tell us about uh, communication or information. I think that it's realizing what the community of practice in that information conveyance is. So who, who, who's painting, who's designing, or who's making, and who do they intend uh, that to be seen by? And that's where it's not about trying to identify an ethnic group, but rather it might be about, well, this, this household, and people, I think people knew who made which pots. I think that, in, especially with these external designs, that you could oftentimes um, see uh, the selection of, of certain kinds of uh, motifs and elements that were attributed to different potters. And so if, it's like going to a potluck where you might write your name on the outside of a bowl or a Tupperware <laughs> because you want to get that back or you want someone to know that that's yours and you brought that food. And so it's an acknowledgement uh, that uh, that people might have some way of, of kind of marking these vessels as they're seen in these different kinds of public uh, situations. Um, my name is Ezra. I'm a Near Eastern undergraduate senior Near Eastern Studies major. Um, and I don't want to uh, ask particularly about something that you've written about in your article, but about one of the underlying assumptions of your article, which we were just talking about. We were just talking about um, communities of consumption, um, which obviously is a type of community. And my question is, how is it that you are able to get from the material data, the actual 4.6 million sherds of pottery there or pieces of pottery that you have, and how can you use that material data to create a community because communities, as we know, are made up of tons of disparate factors, many of which are not related to the material culture. Um, and m my second part of that question was, is your term a community of consumption, a way of kind of limiting the sense that it's a community in order to mitigate some of the inabilities of creating communities based on material cultures? Um, and if so, how does that work? Okay, very interesting question. Uh, I'm going to take that into in two parts. One is in terms of how do we get from the data? How do we get from all these pot shirts? Okay. Um, and consumption has multiple meanings in archaeology. So when we talk about consumption, a lot of times we're talking about the physical uh, act of eating or dining or sharing food. But consumption also has a meaning in terms of the life histories of objects. So they're produced, they're distributed, and then they're used, and they're discarded. And oftentimes archaeologists mesh the use and discard together, 
as the consumption part of the economic trajectory from the earlier production through distribution and, and consumption. So it's an economic term in that sense. Uh, and when people use things, and they use things in redundant ways, they're cooking over and over and over again, they're serving over and over again, and they have trash piles that are literally a, sto a, a, a stone's throw or pot's throw away uh, from where they're living, you get the, the discard of large amounts of trash or in middens. And the regularities in the proportions of the different kinds of ceramics that occur in those trash are actually signatures of consumption. So when we talk about an individual site and we talk about the discard, if sites are occupied for very long periods of time and you get these patterned kinds of discard, and they will be different in different parts, in different areas, um, depending on the strength of the pots, you know, what kinds of pots they're using. But in general, those people who are using pots in the same way and the same kinds of pots will create very similar kinds of discard patterns. And that's where we're getting at the community part is when we relate one site to another site. So in terms of building the networks up, we're comparing what every pair of sites to each other to come up with which ones have the closest signatures in terms of the discard patterns. And we're only using the decorated ones here, and we're using them, um, so for example, the, the White Mountain Redware versus the Cibolo Whiteware versus uh, Segi Orange Ware or other, uh, the Roosevelt Redware. So we have all of these different wares, but if people are doing them in regular fashion, then quantitatively we come up with these ties. And two sides and, and a tie, so two nodes in, the, in network parlance, and then the connectivity or tie between them. And then as we look at all of the sites in a multi-variate uh, kind of uh, sense, then we're able to figure out, well, which, which ones are, are constellated or which ones are, are can we call a community? Uh, which ones are more similar to each other than others? And we have to make some decisions about where those cutoffs are in terms of the percentages, but we but we made those decisions, and that's how we come up with those constellations, and then and which I think are essentially these communities of consumption. If I might just interject here and add, one of the reasons I, I think this has bearing, Ezra, on your question. Uh, one of the reasons why I found this article compelling was because it doesn't force us into an understanding of community as fixed, encompassing, and singular. So there can be a community of consumption that revolves around feasting and these kinds of vessels, but that doesn't mean that one can't belong to a series of other communities that revolve around other kinds of material practice. So community here is not a euphemism for culture. It's not a euphemism for ethnicity. It's not a euphemism for other forms of sort of notions of fixed and static and singularly constituted homogeneous groups. It's something far more, what I found appealing about is it's far more flexible, <coughs> and layered potentially and overlapping, constituted through different forms of practice that may not always sort of map neatly on top of one another, um, but people can belong to multiple forms of community. So perhaps that, in a way I would say that uh, invoking communities of practice in this way does get us away from a notion of community as something that's somehow singular and constituted through only you know, sort of repeated sets of, of practices 
Yes, that, I think that's a, a, an excellent point to bring up. Uh, we have to remember that some of these uh, settlements where the migrants moved in may have been multi-ethnic communities, may, may have spoken different languages, or even if, if they did speak the same language, then maybe even different dialects. But it, it's by coming together in the consumption uh, events that they actually form a community. And so you can actually see how the, the, uh, the consumption actually structures the interaction. So community doesn't exist a priori to the practice. It's the practice that constitutes the community. Um, hi, my name is Alexandra Hegerly. I am a third year student in the Department of Anthropology. Um, I guess my question focuses more on like uh, the cultural aspect of consumption and like kind of behind the scenes and how it is um, networked. So you talk about the constellations of practice um, and the shared ideas of knowledge and the use of ceramics um, as a result of cultural similarities of the tribes. And I was wondering um, if this could be caused through like the intermarriages between them. Uh, like for example, I know um, at least in the Andes, like when a, when a woman married into a family, she would uh, adopt that style in that family as well as keep her own familial style as well. And I was wondering if that had a huge impact on the linkage between local and regional practices of the networking you talk about in your article. Yes, I think that the intermarriage of the migrants uh, into the host communities was a, a very big part of the picture because at least in the area of the Mogollon Rim, the transition zone, where we have a lot of this, these uh, weak ties, the, there isn't evidence for separate residences of the migrants, the, no, no separate enclaves. We do see that in other parts of the Southwest where the migrants moved to these settlements and seem to have kept their distance they were producing pots that were that were traded and and used by these host communities, but up in the Mogollon Rim area, it does seem like intermarriage was a very very important part of what they were doing. I I stop a little short of of trying to uh, talk about kinship uh, in this, but uh, you know kinship is coming back in archaeology, and I also have to point out that this is not very far away from where both uh, William Longacre and Jim Hill did their very early work in the new archaeology, uh, trying to uh, understand what we call now ceramic sociology. And, and they were taking an ethnographic model of intermarriage uh, and trying to identify matrilineal, matril locality in the uh, archaeological record. So I kind of stop a little short of doing that because I'm not sure that that kind of kinship analysis will will work, but it, I think it was an extraordinarily important, these intermarriage patterns, and the fact that they probably happened pretty quickly in some areas versus others. Without coercion, you don't think, without any... With well, we don't, have any, we don't have any evidence for that, but we have to be careful because a lot of the um, bioarchaeology bio has not been done in this area. I worked in this area uh, and did not excavate any burials. There are burials from other sites, and there is some evidence for trauma. In fact, some someone went back to look at the Carter Ranch material, which is where Bill Longacre did his um, uh, work, and there is evidence that some of the people some of the people had trauma, evidence of trauma. But 
generalizing that from one site to the region is very difficult because we don't have a large uh, population. Hi, I'm Colton Sigmund. I'm a senior studying classics and Near Eastern studies. And I was wondering how some of these ideas of communities would fit like in corporate America or like under American capitalism. Mainly like how would you or would you consider corporations that specialize in ceramics or the mass sale of utilitarian ceramic wares such as Walmart or Williams-Sonoma to be a community of practice? Like why or why not? Oh, that's an interesting question about uh, consumerism and about very large-scale industrial production. I think that this, the scale is very, very different. Uh, we, we're seeing uh, shared use and consumption of blue jeans and uh, around the world. We, we see shared use of, you know, of a lot of the same kinds of tablewares you know, that are sold by Williams-Sonoma and other companies. Uh, I think that there may not be quite as much uh, that we can do analogically with that, although there are a lot of people who study material culture uh, and its intersection with contemporary society um, who are interested, in, in fact, in, in, in uh, consumerism and, the, uh, and consumption in general. What I would say might be another way of tackling today's industrial production uh, would be through the network uh, models and theory in terms of uh, who is innovating and where does that innovation come from? And also to get at the, the concept of, of brokerage. Uh, and it may be very, very differently play, played out in, in industrial situations than in some of the situations that I was talking about in this paper. Um, so for example, um, you might look at a corporation and try to understand the different divisions within that corporation and how they're interacting and who is the, the, the broker, who is linking the different departments, say, at one different specific kind of corporation to understand how creativity might be uh, encouraged. And so I think that that's maybe where I would go with, with these network models and with the whole idea that was presented in this, in this paper, as opposed to uh, trying to interpret consumerism writ large. Well, it is interesting to think about how consumption practices would differ among those who can afford Williams and Sonoma plates versus those who buy their plates at Walmart. And so there may be communities of consumption, uh, you know, just to use the two examples that you uh, highlighted that are grounded in class differences uh, that we could see that might yeah, map out through different usages of vessels, these different industries. Yeah, so. Um, hi, I'm Zoe. I am a sophomore studying English with minors in French and history. And um, I'm really interested in your idea of artifacts playing roles in performances in these super household feasts. Um, the idea really seems to bridge the gap between technical practices themselves and the cultural analysis that we can um, then get from them. Um, but these are sort of present in in situations in which a shared ideology is present when it's more of a public uh, gathering, would you say that the notion of performance as um, with uh, wares as agents of performance is present in the creation of more common everyday items when an audience is not present? Because I know that sometimes 
plates and things are taken to feast and taken home, but I'm sure there are more simple um, storage items and things around the house that um, might not necessarily be exposed to that kind of environment. So would you say that this idea of performance and um, the role of the potter is uh, present in a more, uh, I guess, individual household environment? I think this gets back to one of the earlier questions about uh, what the scale of the audience and the and participation is. I think that I think that there's performance. Performance is part of all aspects of of daily life. It's just what who is is being part of that, you know, who's playing the act, <laughs> and uh, a lot of objects might be made for a very close observation and close performance uh, and some objects are made for much more distant and bigger groups so there's kind of a, a, a continuum between very close very um, uh, individual and maybe even didactic kinds of interactions as opposed to these much larger ones and and we have to be careful not to just um, bifurcate or dichotomize that there's you know, public and private because they, they intersect so much. Hi, my name is Daniela Song. I'm a sophomore. Um, my major is city planning. Um, I was really interested in your article where you talk about the strength of network connections between areas. Um, and you talk about strong ties and weak ties. And I was just wondering, um, I just wanted to know a little more about this, like how you figured out, how you calculated strong and weak ties, um, what factors did you look at to calculate them? And I was also wondering how migration would play into the calculation of strong and weak ties. The, the strong and weak tie analysis comes from uh, network analysis in general. And in our interpretation and our use of the strong ties, are those that in which you have two two settlements that where most of their their pottery is is similar, and we use a um, a cutoff of you know 75 percent or more similar, and then the weak ties are basically the opposite. So if they only share 25 percent or less, then those are the weak ties. In general, weak ties are correlated with much higher diversity of wares. And we get that diversity in the situations where there's innovation. And that's where the correlation with the migration is, uh, is so clear, is that migrants are, are moving into these areas. They're innovating. They're creating new ceramics that are not exactly like what was made there before, increasing the diversity. And then that contributes to the statistical a phenomenon that we are identifying as weak ties. Since we're in the realm of statistics here, this relates to one of my questions, which is we talked earlier in this class about sampling, and I was wondering how different sampling strategies at these 590 different sites uh, can be mitigated in making these comparisons of strength and weakness. Yeah, yeah. The, the protocols that we included in this um, are not part of this paper, but they're part of other papers that we published. And we had to make a lot of uh, decisions. And we decided that 
we wanted to go for screened contexts, not not just randomly picking up things where people might just you know pick up the, the prettiest or the, the red wear over the white wear over the corrugated. Uh, secondly, uh, we, we targeted middens because we wanted to get at the accumulations um, you know, in terms of the discard. And then um, we also uh, had to um, uh, test whether or not small samples were affecting our results. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, did random resampling of the assemblages um, over and over again to look at where that redundancy lay. And then we also, at the full uh, level of the entire settlement database, we randomly uh, took out sites to see how that would affect the pattern. And so there's a lot of simulation uh, that went into uh, the results so that we knew that these were robust patterns. So yes, you have to do this. You have to be able to say that, yes, this is not just a a random effect of a few sites or a few potsherds uh, uh, controlling or, or um, uh, uh, driving the analysis. Yeah. It seemed to be a critical step in any archaeology network analysis. Uh, the data sets are large enough in other such cases to do that, to test for that. Uh, Hi, I'm Christian Brickhouse. I'm a junior studying linguistics and anthropology. And I really enjoyed your article, especially your focus on uh, discard and how that in and of itself creates um, a structured uh, structured refuse. And um, my question is, you talk about how um, red wares and white wares are preferred for certain uses, and at some point in time, those preferences changed. And so trying to connect the two, did you see that there was a change in the patterns of discard? Um, that led up to that change in preference? And um, do you see differences in patterns of discard based on those preferences? Well, both, I think. But the, um, the, the Southwestern, uh, the history of Southwestern ceramics uh, shows that whiteware was made earlier than, well, actually, that's not true. I should say there's some undecorated redware that is earlier than whiteware. And then there's decorated whiteware. Uh, and the black on white tradition that a lot of people think about for the Southwest um, actually is eclipsed by the polychromes. And we've known this since the 19-teens. It's the basis of seriations that were done by Alfred Kroeber and Leslie Spear in comparing the different assemblages at places like Zuni to understand the whole history of their uh, occupation. And so this is one of the kind of the, the larger trends that we see in the, in the northern southwest in particular is this replacement of white wear uh, with these uh, red wares and especially polychromes. Um, so it was a choice that people made. Uh, they no longer made water jars uh, out of white, black, just black and white pots. They, their water jars were decorated with polychrome designs. And that is what we're picking up in the archaeological record to some extent, is when, when people all make that change uh, together. Hi, um, I'm Melissa. I'm a senior in industrial and labor relations, minoring in archaeology. Um, and I was wondering, 
Um, so if similar consumption patterns can indicate shared identities in a certain aspect, how does the idea of um, performance play into that? Like, is it a true identity, a true shared identity, or is it just sort of manipulative? Uh, well, this is where uh, we have to recognize how identity is constructed. And I take the position that um, everybody has an identity, but it's made up of their participation in multiple networks or multiple communities. And so just like everybody in this room, you're a member of this class, uh, but some of you are graduate students. So you're part of a graduate student community. And some of you are undergraduates. And then there are other cross-cutting, intersecting uh, ways in which you are members of other kinds of communities. And it's it, when we look at identity, it's not just, uh, we have to be really cognizant that somebody might be part, playing a part in, in a community that is highly situational and that might change um, from one performance to another. And so it's really about, um, in a network term, that a person is a node and is connected to all of these other communities at all of these other different multi-scalar levels. Maybe I can end with one final question for Professor Mills as our time winds down here. I'm wondering whether the network analysis in the end revealed a pattern that was sort of already known intuitively or through traditional methods but gave quantitative support for that, or whether really it exposed something that, or shifts over time in these connections and networks that could not have and had not been seen before this sort of large quantitative analysis. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a very important question because we have to be careful when we adopt new methods and techniques that we're not just reinventing the, the, the wheel, not just showing that, you know, what we already knew. In, the, in this case, um, because we were able to fill in a lot of the gaps, uh, we were able we were able to show uh, the connectivities that were across the Southwest, as opposed to individual regions. And so, part of the the contribution of this study is its scale, is being able to show who was connected to who uh, throughout the Southwest, but also breaking it down to different time periods. We developed a method of being able to parse out the dynamics of the networks. And so we have these 50-year time periods uh, that we use, and that had not been done before, uh, so especially at, at this larger regional scale. And that that's what I think opened up a lot of people's eyes and also makes us want to extend the database. We really want to add the Rio Grande and Southern Colorado uh, to our database because there were migrations from Mesa Verde to the Rio Grande, and we want to see how that intersects with the migrations that we've documented by looking at this swath of Arizona and New Mexico, which encompasses the Cayenta migration into the central and southern southwest. Well, thank you again for joining us and for sharing the fascinating paper with us, and we look forward to reading it in print. Well, thank you for inviting me. In. Fantastic questions. It's a pleasure to be here. been listening to Radio CM, the podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on cm.cornell.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>